Warning! Binge Mode contains adult content. Goblet of Fire, guys. What a great, great, great book. Incredible book. Everybody's growing up. Fred and George up to a bunch of nonsense. Who knows what might arise here? That's all I'll say. So if you don't want adult content, if you're not looking for that, then please check out Jam Session. One more warning. Yeah. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why our Percy masturbation jokes Mm. are about to switch to thick bottom jokes, (laughs) please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Nagini has interesting news, Wormtail. It said. Indeed, my lord? Said Wormtail. Indeed, yes. Said the voice. According to Nagini... There is an old muggle standing right outside this room, listening to every word we say. Frank didn't have a chance to hide himself. There were footsteps, and then the door of the room was flung wide open. A short, balding man with graying hair, a pointed nose, and small, watery eyes stood before Frank, a mixture of fear and alarm in his face. Invite him inside, Wormtail. Where are your manners? Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, website. Isn't it Nick Spencer? <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished restoring Dudley's tongue to its normal proportions, it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal? Yeah. It was four feet long before his parents would let me shrink it, which I get. But thank God they did, because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you prefer natural or electric fires, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. What would Arthur, Arthur would call it? The Stitch. Please subscribe on Fruit Pod. The Stitch. And Spotman. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to discuss mantle remodels, which the Dursleys will need now. (laughs) Yes. So far on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've explored the Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, and Prisoner of Azkaban Mm. books and movies. And in our HP Extra episodes, we've explored all things Quidditch. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter and answered your Alpos. What a delight that was. Oh, wow. That was good. Do that again. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You sound just like Pigwidgeon. Yes. On today's episode, we're diving into chapters one through five of Goblet of Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, while those chapters are today's Mm. primary focus, We will be going deep on details from all seven books and eight movies and the wider Potter canon. Wide canon. Taking the entire series into account. Take it all. (laughs) Take the whole series. Into account from the moment we greet the postman at the door. Hello. He's got questions. That's right. So grab your stamps, cram the address in wherever you can, because it's time to head back 
to the borough. Let's go to the borough. Mal, yeah. your devotion is nothing more than cowardice. Oh. You would not be here if you had anywhere else to go. Whoa. How am I to survive without you when I need feeding every few hours? <laughs> Who is to milk Nagini? <laughs> Who is to help me offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet's first five chapters? You seem so much milk stronger. Milk the snake! <laughs> My lord! But I will help. Let's climb aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot. The Hogwarts Express. Chapter one, the Riddle House. In Little Hangleton, we meet Frank Bryce, an aged gardener living on the grounds of what is colloquially referred to as the Riddle House, which is bad. (laughs) Frank has lived there for decades, including 50 years ago, when the three members of the Riddle family who resided therein were discovered dead. Frank was arrested for the murders and to this day is suspected by many in the town of having perpetrated the crime. But police found no evidence of foul play. The Riddles, it seems, simply dropped dead. All at once. I hate when that happens. In the same happens. moment. <laughs> that just happens sometimes. Frank, free again, stays on the grounds, tending garden. I find this very sweet. It is. Sad but sweet. And one night, in the present day, he awakens and sees a flickering light. Flames coming from the abandoned riddle house. He investigates. And from a hallway on the second floor, he overhears a strange and ominous conversation between monsters at the reader recognizes as Voldemort and Wormtail, touching on everything from kidnapping to murder to someone named Harry Potter. And the snake milking. Don't forget the snake milking. And milk that snake. And then he sees it, the giant snake. It slithers into the room where a conversation is taking place and converses with the Dark Lord. Voldemort beckons Frank into the room. Voldy briefly toys with the muggle, then kills him. And at that moment, 200 miles away, Harry awakens. Chapter two, the scar. Pain courses through Harry's scar as he tries to recall the details of this dream, but they're fading. Harry remembers that Voldemort and Wormtail were plotting to kill him. This is news. Oh, Oh, wait. (laughs) He's usually always so safe. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) He worries over this and the pain in his scar because when it last hurt, Voldemort was near. Could he be again? Harry knows that Ron and Hermione would counsel him to tell someone, but who can he go to? After deciding not to worry Dumbledore or the Weasleys, Harry has an epiphany. My guy, Sirius Black. He can write to his godfather. Dumbledore never answers him anyway. Chapter three, the invitation. A letter arrives at Privet Drive for the Dursleys, and it's from Milf Weasley, asking them if Harry can accompany the Weasley brood to the Quidditch World Cup. Vernon is, of course, pissed that the postman noticed the weird, a.k.a. myriad stamps on the letter, covered in stamps. A lot lot of stamps. Guys, someone help the freaking Weasleys out. (laughs) Just help them. But after Harry plays the serious card, Vernon agrees to allow Harry to go. Another letter arrives, this one from Ron, for Harry via outpost. Ron tells Harry that no matter what, (laughs) the Weasley family is coming at 5 o'clock on Sunday. That's the next day. They're going to pick up Harry, take him to the World Cup. The band is truly getting back together because Hermione will be there too. Chapter four, back to the burrow. Just one thing. No one bothered to ask how the Weasleys were going to arrive. <laughs> Harry, not the most detail-oriented. It's, first of all, extremely short notice. And then it's like there's a lot of ways they could get there. <laughs> Just not great communication from both parties here. Arthur, Fred, George, and Ron come to Privet Drive via the Flu Network terrifying the Dursleys and wrecking their living room by blasting open their boarded-up fireplace. 
After some very fraught moments in which Mr. Weasley fails miserably to make small talk with the folks he's currently terrorizing, inadvertently, but still, the family collects Harry and leaves from whence they came, but not before. Fred's prank toffee finds its way into Dudley Dursley's all-too-eager mouth, blowing the boy's tongue up nearly to the size of Nagini. Who will milk Dudley's tongue? <laughs> Jesus. Arthur stays behind to sort it all out. Chapter 5, Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Yes! The initial return to the borough isn't totally smooth. This Fred and George's new mail-order joke shop business and the tongue toffee that's part of it are riling up the parental units. But Harry again finds peace in his friends as our trio is reunited. They're not the only ones having a laugh. Harry elicits another blush from Ginny. Finally gets to meet Ron's two eldest brothers, Charlie and Bill Weasley as well. Love Bill Weasley. Great dude. Lots of dragon leather on my guy. He fucks. (laughs) Bill is the Weasley who definitely fucks. I mean. Well, not counting the parents. Every Weasley fucks. Not everyone wants to discuss fang earrings and haircuts, though. Percy needs silence for his work. Until it's his turn to talk, of course. At dinner, Percy discusses business at the ministry, where he works under Barty Crouch. Senior. Senior. The head of the Department of International Magical Cooperation. Percy mentions a name that we've heard earlier in Chapter 1. Bertha Jorkins, a ministry official who's gone missing. Hmm. She'll be fine. She'll show up. She'll show up. He also mentions that Ludo Bagman, the head of Bertha's department, (laughs) doesn't really seem interested in trying to find her. Ludo Bagman, bad at his job. Let's just start there. Percy also drops an enticing tease about another event following the Quidditch World Cup that needs serious planning. It's top secret, though. Maybe if Percy weren't such a git, someone would actually take the bait and ask him about it. It's top secret, though. Percy, just the top secret. Toughest of hangs. Don't forget the extremely top secret event that we're having that I cannot speak about after the Quidditch World Cup. Top secret. I'm involved in it. Let me tell you more about these cauldron bottoms, though. Oh, my God, this fucking guy. No time now, though. Molly asks everyone to tuck in early, as they'll have to get up at the crack dawn, at least the underage folks will, to travel to the Quidditch World Cup. Jason? Yes? How many times do I have to tell you not to mention that unnaturalness under my podcast studio roof? Many, many times. That gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters one through five of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is a clash of worlds. Chapter one, the Riddle House. The fourth book in the Harry Potter saga opens, not in Privet Drive, not with Harry, but in Little Hangleton, a place we'll come to learn is foundational in Voldemort's life, and a place that will be foundational in Harry's life as well by the end of this novel. Here, in this chapter, it's a clash of worlds, an intrusion into our typical Harry-centric narrative, a rare break from his mind, his perspective. It is, to be clear, A fascinating and highly welcome one. These moments from J.K. Rowling are chosen so rarely and with such precision and care that they have a really outsized impact on the story. If we're leaving Harry's perspective, even for a few pages, it really matters. The Riddle House itself is also a clash within its own village, a constant reminder for the inhabitants of a terrible thing that happened, a thing that the Muggle residents cannot properly understand. 50 years ago. A maid entered the then still very well-kept manor home and found all three riddles 
dead. Quote, lying there with their eyes wide open, cold as ice, still in their dinner things. Frank, the gardener, was arrested because he had a key to the house and there was no forced entry. Sure, that made him look guilty. Frank told the Muggle authorities that he'd seen a pale, dark-haired, strange teenage boy near the house that day. Tom Riddle, will realize in time, came to kill the father who didn't want him. Frank is ultimately freed after the Muggle authorities fail to find any cause of death. Quote, in fact, the report continued in a tone of unmistakable bewilderment. The riddles all appeared to be in perfect health, mm. apart from the fact that they were all dead. Huh. The Muggles, of course, cannot detect Avada Kedavra, the killing curse, which we will learn about in more detail. Careful saying in a that, few please. <laughs> in chapters. <laughs> I'm not holding my wand at the moment. You're fine. A violation has entered their lives, but it's not one that they can even perceive, let alone grapple with. In the wizarding world, this curse is the greatest danger, the greatest transgression against nature and one's fellow man. But in the muggle world, it's undetectable. So it is too to Frank, who returns to live in his cottage on the grounds, tending to the garden, knowing, as he does this, that everyone whispers about him, that people doubt his innocence even to this day. Frank tries, often in futile fashion, to maintain the property as it passes from owner to owner and as the neighborhood boys torment him and ruin his work. They, like their parents, Frank knows, are convinced of his guilt. And these are the circumstances under which Frank wakes one night, a pain in his leg, flickering light in the riddle house. He goes to investigate, expecting to find those vandals, those people who refuse to believe that he's innocent. And instead, he finds a fire in the grate and a nightmare come to life. Voldemort is like the sword hanging by a single horsehair above the throne in the legendary story about Damocles. That ancient story conveys the message that for those with power, with immense power, danger is always present. Voldemort's influence has been ever-present in this story, but the current Dark Lord himself has been absent since Sorcerer's Stone. Tom Riddle was but a memory from a diary and chamber, and then the Dark Lord's servant, Peter Pettigrew, was ultimately the villain of Azkaban, now in Goblet. We find Voldemort at his family home, reunited with Pettigrew after the rat's escape. Though shriveled and repulsive, not yet returned to his full strength, Voldemort's presence in this place is a show of his gathering vitality. He's in England at his father's former home, scheming of murder and mayhem. Frank overhears a, quote, timid and fearful voice offering, quote, my lord, something from a bottle and a second voice, strangely high-pitched and cold as a sudden blast of icy wind. This second voice says, Move me closer to the fireworm, Dale. And we are brilliantly positioned from various degrees of knowledge. The reader now has enough information to realize that the two speakers are Pettigrew and Voldemort. Frank, a muggle who's fallen victim to magic's intrusion once before, has no idea what he's hearing. Rowling has brilliantly heightened the mystery for Frank while clarifying matters for readers. She's so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every page, I'm just in awe. <laughs> She's so good. Ah! Ah! Voldemort asks for Nagini, then says, You will milk her before we retire, mm. Wormtail. I will need feeding in the night. That's what I say to you every day as we're, true. we're planning the next podcast. I will milk need feeding snake. in the night. <laughs> <laughs> the journey has tired me greatly. This is, again, mystifying for Frank, but huge for readers. Voldemort is corporeal. Yes. He's consuming substances. He's traveling. He is, in other words, on his way to being back, at least yes. in some form, and clearly plotting how to return Fully. Voldemort tells Pettigrew that he's still determined to carry out his plan. But whatever it is, we'll have to wait until after the Quidditch World Cup. Too many magical people from all around the world are in the country right now. Too many eyes. Too much danger. It's interesting to think about Voldemort as someone who's cautious. 
Frank attempts to <laughs> remove a buildup of earwax sure. at this moment because he heard the word quidditch, which he thinks is not a word. Voldemort keeps talking. Quote, Frank stopped trying to clear out his ear. He had distinctly heard the words Ministry of Magic, Wizards, and Muggles. Plainly, each of these expressions meant something secret. And Frank could think of only two sorts of people who would speak in code, spies and criminals. Now, naturally, it would never occur to Frank that he's listening to an infamous evil sorcerer plot his return. That's not the thing that you would think in that situation. This isn't even the kind of clash of worlds that Frank can allow himself to imagine. That's how foreign it is. Wormtail suggests perhaps we go on without Potter? Just Can an we unbelievable just, look from Wormtail here. Can we just get like any other wizard? It's like actually a wild thing for Wormtail <laughs> to try. This fucking guy. Voldemort is like, are you fucking joking, my dude? <laughs> what? In the interest of expediency, you understand? I'm not saying, you know, I'm not like scared of the guy. After all, Potter is watched. Very closely, by no less than Dumbledore, I'm just saying. Think of all Voldemort's powers. Think of Pettigrew in Azkaban saying that the Dark Lord has weapons beyond anything anyone could comprehend. Voldemort has already conquered death. Thirteen years after his demise, those in the ministry whose job it is to search for him will largely ignore his steadily rising power or become corrupted by it or otherwise be too frightened to even say his name. Right. Voldemort, though shrunken and incomplete, is still possessed of great evil power. Yet the mere implication that Pettigrew might abandon him threatens him so much that he flies into a rage. This is a clash of worlds for Voldemort and a clash for us, the readers who've come to fear how powerful he's rumored to be. Voldemort, stronger than he's been in more than a decade, returned to some form of a body with Pettigrew, his servant, to do his bidding. Nagini now by his side and a plan in the works. And yet he is terrified that Pettigrew will leave him. What a strange contradiction. When Peter denies that he would abandon his lord, Voldemort screams at him. <laughs> Do not lie to me. I can always tell a worm tale. Nice. I like that Voldemort just got a southern twang I know. for a second there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice legitimacy foreshadowing here. You are regretting that you ever returned to me. I revolt you. I see you flinch when you look at me. I feel you shudder when you touch me. <laughs> this is really interesting. Just the way he's putting this is almost like a spurned lover. Very interesting. So yeah. sensitive. He says that Wormtail's devotion is, quote, nothing more than cowardice, dismissing Wormtail's claim that Voldemort is gaining strength, saying a few days alone would be enough to undo all. This is a tenuous state of affairs, so powerful. The most powerful dark wizard who ever lived, and yet also so easily threatened in word and action so vulnerable, so needy. What a dangerous and volatile combination. We start to gain a clearer, though still quite muddy by brilliant design picture of Voldemort's plan. Quote, I have my reasons for using the boy as I have already explained to you and I will use no other. I have waited 13 years. A few more months will make no difference. As for the protection surrounding the boy, I believe my plan will be effective. All that is needed is a little courage from you, Wormtail. Courage you will find, unless you wish to feel the full extent of Lord Voldemort's wrath. Now, this is terrifying to hear. What are they talking about specifically? Yes. What awaits Harry? Voldemort and Wormtail's relationship is also fascinating to consider because Voldemort is brutal in his critiques of the only servant in all this time who actually found him. Now, of course, Barty Jr. certainly would have found Voldemort sooner if he could have. In contrast, Wormtail was forced out of hiding, would have happily lived on as a rat in the comfy Gryffindor Tower beds. It was a great look for him. 
But at the end of the day, (laughs) he found him. When Wormtail registers his continued objections to killing Harry at this particular moment, again, because, you know, he'll he'll tell Voldemort. I'm not saying I like the kid. Worried about Bertha. Yeah, that's And what people might figure out and what they might worry about and wonder about. I'm not, it's not like I like Harry. What are you saying? Voldemort tells him, don't worry, you'll have help. I'm not asking you to do it alone. By that time, my faithful servant will have rejoined us. This is ultimately a great Barty Jr. hint, but in the moment, it's A, a terrifying prospect for readers, because who is this? Who is this person? And B, a ton of shade (laughs) thrown on Peter the Rat Pettigrew. So harsh. I am a faithful servant, Wormtail says. Wormtail, I need somebody with brains. Somebody whose loyalty has never wavered. And you, unfortunately. Oh, my God. Fulfill neither requirement. So harsh. Now go milk my steak. I mean, that's damn. You know what I'm saying? You spend 12 years as a rat just to eventually nurse a shriveled raisin back to life. He's like a disgusting, fleshy pumpkin blob. And this guy is talking shit to you like you're not even faithful. And also you're dumb. (laughs) That sucks. Wormtail, surprisingly, though, stands up for himself a little. I was the one who found you, he says. I brought you Bertha Jorkins. We don't yet know what role Bertha has played in all of this, but it's clear it's significant. And this primes us when we hear her name again in Chapter 5. Stay tuned for that. To be on high alert, Voldemort says, I do not deny that her information was invaluable. Without it, I could never have formed our plan, and for that, you will have your reward, Wormtail. I will allow you to perform an essential task for me. One that many of my followers would give their right hands to perform. Homie's got jokes. It's fucking totally. <laughs> really? You wonder if later in the graveyard, Wormtail is like, oh, I get it. <laughs> but again, we see here already with the benefit of hindsight how much Voldemort had already plotted out, how much hinges on Bertha's right. intelligence about Barty Jr. and the Triwizard Tournament. How fully ready Voldy is to disrupt Harry's world at Hogwarts. I killed Bertha because I had to. She was fit for nothing after my questioning. Quite useless. Terrifying stuff from Voldemort. What a dick. This scene plays out from Frank Bryce's perspective, remember. And that reality creates wonderful tension for the reader because Frank has no idea what he's just blundered into. But we, the reader, we do. And we surely want to say, get out of there, my guy. Get out, Frank. Why are you hanging around here? We know the knee is stiff, but get to moving. Yes. For Frank, despite how far in the specifics of what he's hearing are, the meaning is clear. It's unambiguous. These men are talking about having killed a woman. Quote, he was dangerous, a madman, and he was planning more murders. This boy, Harry Potter, whoever he was, was in danger. Now that is... Fantastic. Yeah. Because, again, Harry is the most famous person in the wizarding world, and his name means absolutely nothing to Frank. What a emblematic moment for what a clash this is. Voldemort continues, One more murder. My faithful servant at Hogwarts. Harry Potter is as good as mine, Wormtail. It is decided. There will be no more argument. But quiet. I think I hear Nagini. (laughs) Now, try to put yourself back in the headspace that you were in before you knew about Barty's imposter Moody and the Portkey Cup and the graveyard plot. Try to remember what you were thinking when you heard this. Who is the servant he's talking about? What are they planning to do to Harry? Somehow, things then take an even darker and more ominous turn when Nagini appears. Frank hears a strange sound. 
He doesn't know what it is. We do. It's parcel tongue. He has no frame of reference for it. And this is the first appearance of Voldemort's beloved snake and, we'll learn in time, Horcrux. This lets us know that something truly strange is happening. Consider a technique that Rowling uses in the scene. Quote, Horrified, transfixed, Frank stared as its undulating body cut a wide, curving track through the thick dust on the floor, coming closer and closer. What was he to do? Part of the magic of fiction is, are these little moments when the author slips subtly into a character's voice in the midst of a descriptive line, as happens with what was he to do, which we instinctively understand without needing any kind of attribution as being Frank's inner voice. Look for little passages like this, not in just this book, but other books as you read. As Frank is trying to process the horror that's playing out before him, inside the room, the cold voice was continuing to hiss and Frank was visited by a strange idea, an impossible idea. This man could talk to snakes. Voldemort announces what Nagini has just told him. There's a muggle listening to every word that they say. Invite him in, Wormtail. Quote, where are your manners? That is chilling. Frank sees the small man and the snake on the rug, quote, like some horrible travesty of a pet dog. Again, a clash with the expected, the normal, the common. Frank, faced with the need for action in this moment, feels braver. We read that it had always been that way for him in the war. But he's never faced a war like this. Nope. Voldemort toys with him. And one of the true pleasures of the Dark Lord's existence is torturing the weak preying on those beneath him who he thinks are beneath him, using them for his amusement, and then discarding them. And this scene is horrific. But the parts here at the end, when Frank is in Voldemort's presence, are particularly so. This is the fate we have to realize, we have to think, that awaits all of Muggle kind should Voldemort prevail. We often think about the struggle against Voldemort in more personal terms. What will Voldemort's rise mean for Harry? For Ron, for Hermione, for Hogwarts, for all of those people that we've met and that we care about. But the world is so much bigger than the confines of that magical school. Just the wizarding world, as we will soon see with the introduction of Durmshang and Bulbaton, the other departments of the Ministry and the Quidditch World Cup, is significantly bigger than Hogwarts. It's huge. And the Muggle world, which we often ignore because the books are an escape from said world, is obviously vast. This scene helps set the stakes for that coming battle by letting us experience through Frank's uncomprehending eyes and ears, the nature of the threat the world faces. You have no wife, said the cold voice very quietly. Nobody knows you are here. You told nobody you were coming. Do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Muggle, for he knows. He always knows. Frank mocks the Lord moniker and tells Voldemort to face him like a man. But I am not a man, Muggle, he said, the cold voice barely audible now over the crackling of the flames. I am much, much more than a man. A horcrux clue there. However, why not? I will face you. Wormtail, come turn my chair around. And Wormtail in horror does as he's asked and Frank's walking sit clatters to the ground from the book. He was screaming so loudly that he never heard the words the thing in the chair spoke as it raised a wand. There was a flash of green light, a rushing sound. And Frank Bryce crumpled. He was dead before he hit the floor. 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. That's the first chapter of this book. It comes in hot. Incredible. Oh my God. And also... The first murder on the page, murder? First one, right? Well, certainly in the movie, Harry murders Coral. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not counting Harry and killing one of his his teacher. It's a great point. Chapter two, The Scar. Harry has already faced Voldemort three times, in fact, in some form, but he's never experienced anything quite like this. This is intimate. Harry was in the room 
basically, with Voldemort in a wheelchair. We're not quite at the point where Harry is actually seeing through Voldemort's eyes. We can tell because he saw the Dark Lord's chair swivel around and he saw Voldemort, that shriveled form nestled in the chair. But he heard Voldemort plotting to kill him and he saw Frank's murder. So Harry now knows, as we do, what will happen to everyday people under a potential Voldemort regime. Now, it's a question we were asking ourselves. Why does Harry not see Thestrals at this point after witnessing Frank's murder? The idea of Thestrals is so fascinating to consider because it isn't an exact science. There's something there about perception Mm -hmm. and feel. And the idea that in that moment, Harry doesn't actually know if what he saw in the stream was real, if it happened. And so even though it haunts him and it hangs over him and he'll come, especially after the events following the Quidditch World Cup, to really think that what happened in the dream and the pain in his scar is a serious harbinger and means something real, he doesn't feel the same way as he will after he's literally standing next to Cedric and watching and hearing his body hit the ground. Let's drill down a bit more on all of this. Harry has had a share of strange dreams, but this, this is something different. Quote, it had seemed so real. Harry thinks as he wakes. He's struggling to shake the vision. And this is another world, a dream world, a world that signifies the shared pathway between Voldemort and himself, pathways that Harry cannot yet even fathom, let alone really understand. And trying to recall the details from this dream world is, quote, like trying to keep water in his cupped hands. Now, we're all familiar with that sensation. Part of the reason that Harry can't shake the dream is that this clash of worlds is manifesting for him physically via the searing pain in his signature scar. This is worrying because, as Harry can't help but harp on, the last time his scar hurt, Voldemort was near. But he can't be here now. Can't be in Privet Drive. Talk about a clash of worlds that's too discombobulating to even comprehend. And one, of course, that Lily's protective sacrifice currently prohibits, though, as with so many other things, Harry will not have full clarity on that for some time. Harry shakes himself. There's no one here but him and the Dursleys. Quote, their dreams untroubled and painless. Still, rational thought only takes us so far. Harry has to tell someone, and more importantly, needs to hear someone to tell him that It's okay. What's happening is fine. It's okay. We'll figure it out. He can't talk to the Dursleys, obviously, from the book. Harry had never been able to confide in them or tell them anything about his life in the Wizarding World. The very idea of going to them when they woke and telling them about his scar hurting him and about his worries about Voldemort was laughable. Imagine. Harry's in the Dursleys' house, but he's not part of their home. He's occupying space. There remains an impenetrable barrier between Harry and his aunt and uncle and cousin, a refusal, really, on their part to open their world to his, and that leaves Harry feeling lost in this moment, unmoored. He knows that Hermione would tell him, ask Dumbledore, or let's look this up and figure out what this is. Ron would ask his father, Arthur, for an insight on curse scars. But Harry doesn't want to bother Dumbledore or worry the Weasleys. From the book, what he really wanted, and it felt almost shameful to admit it to himself, was someone like, someone like a parent, an adult (sighs) wizard whose advice he could ask without feeling stupid. Someone who cared about him, who had experience with dark magic. And then it comes to him, Serious. That breaks my heart. It's tough. <sighs> Thinking about Sirius fills Harry with joy, but also with longing. Recall how Harry felt when he saw his parents in the Mirror of Erised and Sorcerer's Stone. Quote, he had a powerful kind of ache inside him. Half joy, half terrible sadness. It's not so dissimilar here. You know, even though Harry and Sirius barely had a moment together in which they both 
totally understood the truth, they spent that moment dreaming of a shared future. And that was meaningful to both of them. And now when Harry thinks about Sirius, he's full of bliss that he has him in his life, but also regret. Mm -hmm. Quote, the home Harry might have had if Wormtail had not escaped had been haunting him all summer. It had been doubly hard to return to the Dursleys knowing that he had so nearly escaped them forever. Life with Sirius is the world that Harry almost had. It's the world that he lost. And there's one benefit. At least the Dursleys are so afraid of Sirius, <laughs> just the idea of him yes. being a murderer, that they're letting Harry keep his stuff in his room this summer. Our good young man conveniently forgot to mention that oh, Sirius is innocent. And Harry likes to think of Sirius happy, away in these remote spots, far from the crippling, oppressive crush of the Dementors. When he writes to him, he tells his godfather about his scar hurting and asks if cursed scars twinge in this fashion, but he leaves out the details of the dream. Quote, he didn't want it to look as though he was too worried. In other words, he doesn't want Sirius to worry about him, thereby potentially fleeing wherever he currently is, whatever safe harbor he has, and returning to harm's way. Oh, Harry. Chapter 3, The Invitation. Every meal at the Dursleys this summer feels like being in harm's way. Dudley's on a diet. Mm. He's, of course, unhappy about it. Harry has found refuge in his friends who've responded to his call for help by sending him food, then scrumptious birthday cakes that he's hiding under his floorboards for additional sustenance. It's a small but important reminder that Harry's now at the point in his life where he doesn't have to let the Dursleys' machinations of the moment shape his world. He has other means of support, emotional support. He can take control and improve his own circumstances. Dudley's world doesn't have to be Harry's. Sometimes, though, Harry is not in control. And in those moments, the magical world can still crash into the Dursleys in a way that unsettles the very foundation of their daily existence. The seemingly smallest gusts can cause the biggest waves. To wit, when the postman rings the doorbell to discuss the letter that Mrs. Weasley wrote to the Dursleys, asking permission to take Harry to the Quidditch World Cup and to house him at the borough for the rest of the summer. This seems, like, innocuous enough, right? Well, the letter itself contains some of Vernon's most feared trigger words like quidditch and magical and muggle and normal. It also ends with, quote, P.S. I do hope we've put enough stamps on, which gets us to the reason the postman came to the door in the first place. The envelope is plastered in stamps, mm -hmm. all but a square inch, in which Mrs. Weasley has crammed the Dursley's address. Vernon tells Harry, the postman noticed, very interested to know where this letter came from he was. That's why he rang the doorbell. Seemed to think it was funny. This is Vernon's worst fear, that anyone, anywhere, will discover their connection to the magical world, to anything out of the totally ordinary. A non-Harry piece of the wizarding world, because they have to have Harry, but a non-Harry piece of the wizarding world coming into their home has to lead to flashbacks to the other times that the magical realm has clashed with mm -hmm. their own, when Harry was left on their doorstep, when the Hogwarts letters arrived, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What harbinger might this letter be? Harry is astute, and he recognizes the clash going on in his uncle's mind. He's experienced at this. He understands the ebbs and flows of their emotions. Vernon doesn't want Harry to be happy, and letting him go to the cup would lead to happiness— but he also doesn't want Harry around, hates having him there, and letting Harry go to the cup would rid Vernon of this bringer of world clashes until the next summer. He buys time by asking who Mrs. Weasley is, rudely and extremely richly calling her dumpy, and what, quote, rubbish Quidditch is. It's easy to hand wave a moment like this, but it's actually extremely illuminating. The Weasleys and Quidditch are literally two of the most important things in Harry's entire life. 
And Vernon doesn't have any idea what they are. What a fitting snapshot into the divide between their worlds. Vernon, unsurprisingly, freaks when Harry explains the part of Mrs. Weasley's letter that mentions replying the normal way. Mm -hmm. For wizards, of course, that means outpost. And when in the past Vernon had locked up Harry's possessions and kept Hedwig's activity tightly regulated, he didn't have to worry as much about encroachments like this, or at least he didn't realize that he had to worry about it, didn't know the ways that Harry was figuring out to work around his restrictions. Sirius's looming shadow has already changed that, and now this letter, this conversation, has forced Vernon to contemplate the very things that he wants to ignore completely out of existence. To Harry, he says, how many times do I have to tell you not to mention Mm -hmm. that unnaturalness under my roof? He's calling Harry's existence unnatural. Harry plays his trump card, Sirius. And Harry watches as Vernon plays through the scenarios in his mind and lands on the only outcome that there really is, letting Harry go to the cup so as not to risk Sirius thinking or knowing that his godson is being mistreated. And he then makes an extremely weird call that makes it slightly harder to have sympathy for him in chapter four, which we'll get to momentarily. He tells Harry that the Weasleys have to come pick Harry up. I don't get this. This guy doesn't want magic or magical beings anywhere near him. And yet he's like, they'll have to come to my home to pick you up. I'm not going out. That is bizarre. When Harry goes upstairs, he sees Ron's owl, a gift from Sirius at the end of Azkaban, who is apparently named Pig. Delightful. And Ron says, if they say yes, send Pig back with your answer pronto and we'll come and get you at five o'clock on Sunday. If they say no, send Pig back pronto and we'll come and get you at five o'clock on Sunday anyway. The entire bit with the Dursleys and the letter was just a formality. Ah, but at what cost? We will soon find out. But in the meantime, Harry is peaceful and happy for a change. He has his cake, literally. He is leaving the Dursleys. He's going to the Quidditch World Cup. The dream, the pain in his scar, it feels like a long, long time ago. Quote, it was hard just now to feel worried about anything, even Lord Voldemort. Now a brief break for a word from our sponsor. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure. Wow. Universal Studios Florida and Universal's Volcano Bay. Ooh, there's a Universal Hotel for every style and budget. And during our visit, we stayed at the wonderful Lowe's Sapphire Falls Resort and escape to an island paradise. From the stone turret in the lobby to the inviting charm of each room and suite. Wonderful. You're surrounded by a haven that is inspired by landmarks of the islands. Amid the beach area, palm trees, and pool, you'll find Caribbean-themed dining options, including Strongwater Tavern, which offers rare vintage rums. Love it. Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. You can't forget about the unique dining experiences at Universal CityWalk that Mm. every member of your party will enjoy. We dined at NBC Grill & Brew with nearly 100 high-definition screens that immersed us in a stream of sports coverage. We also had a pretzel that was the size of Nagini, fair to say. It was like four feet tall. Expect much more than your average bar food as a mix of tasty classics and incredible new creations are on this menu. 
And no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. And now, back to binge mode. Chapter four, Back to the Burrow. Interesting chapter. This In this chapter, the Clash of Worlds theme unfolds through the lens of the Dursleys. And by this point in our story, the Harry Dursley clash scene, which opens most of the books in which magic enters the extremely cloistered sphere of Privet Drive, has by this point become a staple. In the past, this scene has often been played for laughs, been presented as some kind of like righteous comeuppance or felt like more of a threat to Harry who's bound for trouble than for the Dursleys. Think of Harry disappearing the glass at the zoo or Dobby dumping it, Petunia's pudding, or Harry inflating Aunt Marge to enormous sizes. This time, though, the surface details appear similar to things we've read before, but the tenor of the scene is different, ominous, even threatening. It doesn't feel that way at first with Vernon voicing his concern about what the Weasleys will be wearing and Vernon and Petunia fretting over whether their late-coming visitors will misguidedly expect a dinner invite, Vernon puts on his best suit not to welcome his guests, but to look impressive and intimidating. It's all building up in classic fashion. The Dursleys look like the assholes who can't open their minds, but then it starts to shift very subtly as Dudley, truly afraid, covers his bottom with his hands and walks sideways from room to room so as not to present another pigtail target. He's scarred by what happened to him. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to laugh at this, but it's also increasingly hard not to think about the terror they must be feeling. Understand also, we know what the Weasleys not just are capable of, but what they will do, what kind of people they are. The Dursleys have no such idea. All they know is they are in the presence of people with extreme power. Of course, they would never bother to find out either. Right. That's true. Our first hint of trouble comes when Vernon asks if the Weasleys will be driving. And again, naturally, it did not occur to Harry to ask for any details. And uh, no, turns out they're not driving. Arthur, the twins, and Ron arrive slightly late on Sunday evening through the fireplace, which Arthur had temporarily hooked up to the flu network. Only the fireplace is blocked up. There's a fake fire plugged in front, and the Weasleys are stuck. And even now, the Dursleys still look like the bad guys. Quote, the Dursleys rounded on Harry like a pair of angry wolverines. But then loud bangs and scrapes issue from the fireplace and the muggles become fairly alarmed. Harry fills in his relatives. Quote, they, they've tried to get here by flu powder, said Harry, fighting a mad desire to laugh. They can travel by fire, only you've blocked the fireplace. Hang on. Now, that language about Harry having a, quote, mad desire to laugh is notable. To Harry, this is a comedic yes. culture class. This is a farce. Stemming from differences in routine. This is about what's lost in translation. But that, of course, will not be how it feels to the Dursleys. Harry shouts to Arthur, explaining the nature of the blockage. It's their electric fire. They've got it in there. They don't actually light fires in there. After Mr. Weasley expresses glee at the prospect of seeing <laughs> Ilketric, what does he call it? Ilchikalik? <laughs> Seeing electric fireplaces, he pronounces without asking for permission, I'm trying to think what to do. Yes, the only way. Stand back, Harry. Now, in Arthur's mind, perfectly logical. I'm stuck in this chimney. What do I do? He knows that he can easily repair the damage he does. This is just temporary. But what about the shock this will cause the people on the other side? What about the cost of this intrusion? There's actually no thought given to that. Vernon bellows, wait a moment, but to no avail. And then there's a terrific bang. 
from the book. The electric fire shot across the room as the boarded-up fireplace burst outward, expelling Mr. Weasley, Fred, George, and Ron in a cloud of rubble and loose chippings. Aunt Petunia shrieked and fell backward over the coffee table. Uncle Vernon caught her before she hit the floor and gaped, speechless, at the Weasleys. So the Weasley family emerges, and Arthur's like, hey, what's up? (laughs) Vernon backs away, words failing him, his suit covered in hair and dust. Arthur apologizes for the damage, explains that it didn't occur to him that it wouldn't actually be an operational fireplace. He says not to worry. This is a true clash of worlds, this. Two sides that understand nothing of each other. Arthur, again, by the way, muggle expert. (laughs) (laughs) He says not to worry. He'll light a fire to send the boys back, repair the fire, and then disapparate. Naturally, this is like, like, (laughs) Vernon is like, huh, who he? None of this will calm them because they don't understand any of it, nor, as Harry thinks, probably even makes sense to them. That's correct. They don't understand this. This doesn't stop Arthur amid the rubble of the Dursley's living room from continuing to try to spark up a conversation with a shell shock Vernon like he's just like at a tea party. A uh, very nice place you've got here. It's destroyed. The room is destroyed. <laughs> very my good friend Tom vibes here. Like, yes. read the room. <laughs> the room is destroyed. <laughs> From the book, as the usually spotless living room was now covered in dust and bits of brick, this remark didn't go down too well with the Dursleys. Uncle Vernon face purpled once more, and Aunt Petunia started chewing her tongue again. However, they seemed too scared to actually say anything. Too scared to actually say anything in their own home. Again, this is comedic to us because we're like, the Weasleys would literally never hurt a fly. Look at it from the Dursleys' point of view. It is... It's actually quite amazing for Rowling to ask us to look at this scene through their point of view, but it really is quite revelatory. Arthur plows on, his curiosity tickled by the muggle items all around him. Ah, here it is. They run off electricity, do they? He said knowledgeably. Ah, yes, I can see the plugs. I collect plugs. And Vernon says nothing. He sidles instead in front of Petunia to shield her from harm, which I think is actually the most touching thing that Vernon's ever done in the books. He does love his family. Yes, he does. Quote, as though he thought Mr. Weasley might suddenly run at them and attack. Again, think about what this is like for the Dursleys. They never asked for any of this. Never asked for any of this. Arthur conjures a fire in the fireplace and sprinkles some flu powder in for the trip home. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be on our way. The Dursleys shrink against the wall in terror. And... Fred and George disappear into the flames, but not before Fred conspicuously drops some sweets accidentally on purpose. Sure. Yeah. As Fred steps into the flames and shouts the burrow, Petunia gives, quote, a shuddering gasp. They're watching people step into flames and disappear in their own home. George and Ron follow, and Harry says goodbye to the Dursleys and is about to enter the fire, too, when Arthur holds him back. Not cheerful anymore. Harry said goodbye to you, he said. Didn't you hear him? Then, when Vernon doesn't respond, he adds, You aren't going to see your nephew till next summer, he said to Uncle Vernon in mild indignation. Surely you're going to say goodbye? Again, these people are just not operating on the same plane of existence. Uncle Vernon's face worked furiously. The idea of being taught consideration by a man who had just blasted away half his living room wall seemed to be causing him intense suffering. As it would anyone, to be fair, in this case. As it would anyone. Totally. But Mr. Weasley's wand was still in his hand, and Uncle Vernon's tiny eyes darted to it once before he said, very resentfully, goodbye then. Then, just as Harry's stepping into the fire, a horrible gagging sound makes him halt. Dudley's tongue, massive. And growing ever more massive by the second. The result of one of Fred and George's 
gag sweets. Literally gag. (laughs) (laughs) Aunt Petunia goes nearly mindless with panic. Quote, Dudley appeared to be suffocating under the combined pressure of his mother and his tongue. Mr. Weasley tries frantically to help, but Vernon is also mad with rage, chucking China figures at Mr. Weasley's head. Now really, Arthur shouts, I'm trying to help. He ushers Harry forward into the fire, says, get out of here. I'm going to do my best to rectify this situation. Okay, put yourself in the Dursley's shoes and think about what we just witnessed. Strange wizards just destroyed your living room, displaying unfamiliar and fearful powers. And aside from just a really stray and not that convincing apology and promise of repair, seemingly are unconcerned about the destruction they've caused. Fred and George, in fact, are delighted. They laugh the whole time. Of course, the Dursleys are awful people. Yes. We they are awful They people. are awful, awful people and have treated Harry horribly over the course of the books. I think it's fair to say that they've been abusive to Harry. Yes. And that's not something we should ever forget. What's more, they're intolerant, not open-minded, Maybe they wouldn't be so terrified about what's transpiring if they could bring themselves to actually communicate with Harry and Arthur to find a shared solution. But that said, let's try for a change to see this clash of worlds from their perspective. This is a nightmare scene for them. Again, they never asked for any of this. Plenty of people have to deal with things they never asked for and do so with grace and care. But the point remains, they never asked for it. And after Arthur's quite cheerful destruction of their living room, he, in Vernon's mind, then blatantly threatens him, wand in hand. It's as if he was holding a gun. You're not going to say goodbye to your nephew? Holding a gun after destroying his house. When Vernon doesn't return Harry's goodbye. Now we know Arthur would never do anything, right? We know that, but Vernon doesn't know that. All he knows is a group of terrifyingly powerful individuals just wrecked his home. Vernon actually has no idea. Zero idea what these people are capable of or what they could possibly do. Dudley falling prey to one of the jinxed candies is on the surface Another thing that's played for last, but imagine, again, imagine watching your child suddenly become deformed in this way. Again for them. Right, again, this this is the second time. And he's already scarred by the first one. Can he breathe? Literally, can he breathe? Right. Is he going to die? Is he going to be like this forever? All these thoughts racing through Petunia and Vernon's mind. This, they think, is what happens when wizards come into contact with muggles. It's worthwhile for us to consider. If this is what happens with Arthur... A man who loves Muggles, loves them. Yes. Loves and studies them and means them absolutely no harm. What awaits Muggles when the people who really hate them come to power, if they should? Even well-meaning interactions can cause chaos, destruction, and panic. Chapter five. Weasley's Wizard Weezes. Yes. Fred and George are great. Love them. We love Fred and George. Love them. Over the course of our story, they will provide much-needed comic relief much-needed mischief, a much-needed rebellious fuck-everyone spirit. But what they've done in this case, dosing an unsuspecting muggle with a magic substance and offering no cure is really terrible. It's It's bad. It's bad. I mean, they were just going to walk away. It's bad. Again. (laughs) It's bad. If you're willing, and I know it's hard after what we've read, after all we've seen with the Dursleys, to put yourself in their shoes— These exchanges highlight the stakes again for muggles in this clash of worlds. Fred and George are absolutely delighted with what they've done. (laughs) Tongue toffees, said Fred brightly. George and I invented them, and we've been looking for someone to test them on all summer. Great. (laughs) The tiny kitchen exploded with laughter. Arthur returns and reads the twins the riot act. It isn't funny, Mr. Weasley shouted. That sort of behavior seriously undermines wizard-muggle relations. 
I spent half my life campaigning against the mistreatment of muggles and my own sons. Fred and George note that they didn't do it because Dudley's a muggle. They did it because he's a bully and a git. Plus, of course, Arthur is totally ignoring his own role in this mess here. Yes. These scenes raise an interesting question about whether a fair and equitable relationship between the muggle world and the by comparison godlike wizarding world is even possible. When, when there's this much of a power imbalance, what kind of relationship can you have? Mm-hmm. When wizards wrong or abuse muggles, how can humans seek redress? How can they do it? They would depend, clearly, on the goodwill of wizards. What if that doesn't exist? When a supposed expert on muggles comes to your home and wrecks it and brings with him people who deform your child, (laughs) (laughs) who do you complain to? There's no easy answers to these questions, but thinking about them brings out really fascinating aspects of Rowling's story. She's the best. We learn more about Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. We've been there. We got to pop in at the Wizarding World. Such a delight. We learn more about the mail order form for the joke shop goodies that they've been inventing. We also learn about Mrs. Weasley's wrath. She's already pissed that the twins didn't scrape enough owls. She burned the forms, prohibited them from making more. There was, we learn, quite a row. She wants the twins to go into the ministry. They want to open a joke shop. When Harry and co., Go into the kitchen. Mrs. Weasley is raging. Those two, she's shouting. I don't know what's going to happen to them. I really don't. No ambition, unless you can't make as much trouble as they possibly can. Now, this is not true. Right. They actually have <laughs> a fantastic amount of ambition. Quite ambitious. But it comes in an untraditional form. Their particular version of ambition is a clash with Molly's much more traditional desires. She says that they're wasting their brains. Quote, I don't know where we went wrong with them. This chapter isn't just ton-tongue-gate. At long last, we and Harry meet the legendary Bill. Yes. And Charlie Weasley from the books. Bill came as something of a surprise. I love this. (laughs) Because he works at Gringotts and was head boy, Harry thought he'd be like Percy, a uptight, fucking just goober head (laughs) from the books again. However, Bill was, there was no other word for it. Cool. Love it. He is described as tall with a ponytail and a fang earring. Yes. Yes! And clothes that would fit at a rock concert down to the dragon hide boots. Percy's home too, haranguing the assembled for making noise and distracting him from his important work for the Department of International Magic Cooperation and his new boss slash idol. Mr. Barty Crouch, on the important matter of cauldron thickness. That'll change the world, that report will, said Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Front page of the Daily Prophet, I expect, cauldron leaks. Percy went slightly pink. When Harry asks Ron if Percy is enjoying his work, we get a nice bit of foreshadowing about Percy's all-consuming commitment. Enjoying it, said Ron darkly. I don't reckon he'd come home if Dad didn't make him. He's obsessed. Just don't get him onto the subject of his boss. According to Mr. Crouch, as I was saying to Mr. Crouch, Mr. Crouch is of the opinion, Mr. Crouch was telling me they'll be announcing their engagement any day now. For Percy right now, the work world is the only world there is. And if other worlds clash with it, he'll side. We can already see with the ministry. Percy sucks. Tough hang, (laughs) Percy. (laughs) At dinner, Percy remains in form, gushing over Crouch and shitting on Ludo, literal bagman, bagman. 
In Percy's mind, not at all an adept department head, nor sufficiently helpful in organizing the Quidditch World Cup. And then there's something else. Quote, I can't see Mr. Crouch losing a member of our department and not trying to find out what's happened to them. You realize Bertha Jorkins has been missing for over a month now? Went on holiday to Albania and never came back? Wait a minute. Bertha Jorkins? Hold on. That's a name we heard Wormtail and Voldemort discussing in the opening chapter. How ominous. Percy adds, Mr. Crouch has been taking a personal interest. She worked in our department at one time, you know, and I think Mr. Crouch was quite fond of her. Now, of course, Percy has no idea what he's talking about or what Bertha really represents. A clash of worlds incarnate, a direct threat to the lie that Barty Crouch Sr. has maintained for so long. Bertha, he doesn't care about her. She's a threat. Who found her and who might then find out about his secret, about his son? But before anyone, even the reader, can really harp on Percy's Bertha talk for too long and think about what it might mean, he's dropping more hints this time about another mysterious event that will follow the Quidditch World Cup. Percy is so desperately trying to get the Assemble to ask him about the top-secret event, to make himself seem important. He's so important in his own mind, of course, that he can't even get excited about the prospect of a multi-day match at the Quidditch World Cup. Well, I certainly don't, says Percy sanctimoniously in response to Harry saying that he hopes the match lasts five days. I shudder to think what the state of my entree would be if I was away from work for five days. Yeah. Someone might slip dragon dung in it again, eh, Purse, said Fred. That was a sampler of fertilizer from Norway, (laughs) said Percy, going very red in the face. It was nothing personal. It was, Fred whispered to Harry as they got up from the table. We sent it. Man, working at the ministry must be great if you can just, like, skip out on work for months. (laughs) And people be like, yeah, they'll come back. It's all great. You definitely want Ludo as your boss. Keep those checks coming. Very lax with the PTO. They're fine. (laughs) Jason? Yes. They've got an electric fire. Really? Electric, you say? With a plug? (laughs) Gracious, I must see that. Let's think. While you're thinking, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about flu powder. In Azkaban, we went over the night bus. Later in Gobbit, we will talk about port keys, and now we will dive into flu powder. The Wizarding World sure is full of very uncomfortable ways to travel, guys. Yes. They make you feel weird. <laughs> Journeys via flu powder are indeed uncomfortable. As Harry learns in chamber, he immediately swallows a helping of ash upon stepping into the flames, and on the trip itself, he grows dizzy and sick and feels like he's being sucked down a giant drain. Is that better than feeling like something's pulling on your navel? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so why do witches and wizards travel via the flu network, which connects nearly every wizarding household and around a thousand other fireplaces around Britain, including at the Ministry of Magic and various shops? Well, number of reasons. First, the breadth of coverage nearly in any place in the known wizarding world except Hogwarts, which has extra protections, as we know, is accessible. Second, it can be used without fear of breaking the international statute of secrecy because, uh-huh. as Arthur explains in Goblet, Only in special circumstances are muggle households connected. Third, it's useful for children, the elderly and the infirmed, who might not be able to travel via other means. And fourth, it contains inherited advantages over other methods of travel, even for capable witches and wizards. Faster than a broom, for instance, and involves less potential for bodily harm than apparition. Nothing worse than getting splinched. The flu network is reliable and attracts users for a number of reasons, and as such, it has been in vogue for centuries. The glittery flu powder was invented by a witch named Ignatia Wildsmith in the 13th century, but even though it's been around for hundreds of years, 
Nobody knows how it's made, what it's composed of, or even anyone who currently makes it. The only licensed producer in Britain is Flupow, <laughs> a shop in Tygate Alley, which never opens its doors for any visitors. My God, like, let's break up this monopoly forthwith. The secrecy doesn't affect its efficacy, though, because no shortage of flu powder has ever been reported, and it's held the same cheap price of two sickles per scoop for at least a century. This is wild shit. Incredible. The secrecy also doesn't prevent flu from being subjected to plenty of bureaucratic control. The Flu Network Authority is a Ministry of Magic group that monitors and maintains the network. There's also the Flu Network Regulators and the Flu Regulation Panel, which have the ability to connect new fireplaces and even eavesdrop on conversations held through the network. There is another use of flu powder. Witches and wizards can have their head, just the head, as we will see soon. Yes. Temporarily transported to another fireplace to speak to people as Sirius does with Harry when the latter's at Hogwarts, among other instances. Flu powder is easy enough to deploy as long as the user avoids swallowing ash and says the name of the destination loudly and clearly upon entering the harmless, magically enhanced green flames. But that doesn't mean it is foolproof. We know Harry's a fool, for one, when he first uses it in chamber and comes out in nocturne rather than diagonally because consequences can be more severe for those who take greater risks with their flu travel. That's especially true when people experiment with home-brewed versions of the substance. St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries reports frequent, quote, faux flu injuries. In other words, Pottermore says, Somebody has thrown a homemade powder into a fire and suffered the consequences. Don't make it at home. Don't trust any other source but Flupow. <laughs> Who knows how it's made since 1276 or whatever. <laughs> like our gal, Eloise Mintumble, yes! in the time for love, Eloise Mintumble. Mintumble! <laughs> Tough times for Eloise Mintumble. Pottermore also provides us with a more detailed cautionary tale about flu powder. The year was 1855, and a witch named Violet Tillyman, after arguing with her husband Albert, quote, leapt into the living room fire and cried between sobs and hiccups that she wanted to go to her mother's house. Mm. Nothing of note happened for several weeks until Albert, with no clean pots in the house and his socks in urgent need of washing, <laughs> decided that it was time she came home. He decided to retrieve Violet from her mother's house, but surprise, Violet never arrived. Uh-oh. A poster campaign ensued, plus a series of articles in the Daily Prophet, but Violet was nowhere to be found. The incident sent the entire wizarding population into a panic, but only for a moment. Many people stopped using the flu network for a few months, lest they vanish into thin air, but eventually time passed, nothing else happened, and the wizarding community continued as usual. Albert even learned a few cleaning spells, and there the story would have ended except... For the final twist, 20 years later after Albert's death, <laughs> Violet Tillyman reappeared. Apparently her garbled speech upon entering the fluid network had sent her not to mommy's house, but to the fireplace of a handsome wizard named Myron Otherhouse. Incredible! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> uh, from Barmore. <laughs> In spite of Violet's tear-stained, ash-covered, and blotchy appearance, it had been love at first sight when she toppled out of his fire and Myron, <laughs> Violet, and their seven children lived happily ever after. Oh, tough stuff for Albert. Sorry, my guy. Look at him, Myron, of the house. <laughs> wow. Violet, Tillyman, and Mintumble just out there wreaking havoc. Violet, Tillyman. Myron. I love these names. Incredible. Jason? Yes. I will allow you to perform an essential mm. task for me. One that many of my followers would give their right hands to oh. perform. Oh. 
I will let you help me split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet, chapters one through five, in addition to the many we've already mentioned, of course, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Yes. Number one. This will not be our last time in Hangleton. We will be back at the end of Goblet of Fire, of course, much to Cedric's chagrin. Quote, the riddles were buried in the little Hangleton churchyard and their graves remained objects of curiosity for a while. Graveyard plot foreshadowing. Bone of the father unknowingly given you will renew your son. We will also be back with Bob Ogden when we visit the Gaunt Shack in Half-Blood Prince and again in Prince when we visit Morphin's memory of meeting young Tom Riddle. Number two. Speaking of Morphin and Little Hangleton, the whole discussion around police suspecting Frank and then charging nobody is interesting in light of what we learn in Prince where the Wizarding Police do end up taking Morphin Gaunt to prison for the crime. Number three. Wherever Dumbledore was, though, Harry was sure that Hedwig would be able to find him. Harry's Al had never yet failed to deliver a letter to anyone, even without an address. But what would he write? Okay, so a question that some readers have based on lines like that and some others. We know that Harry will use Hedwig and other birds to find Sirius in this fashion. In fact, in Sirius's letter to Harry at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, he says, if ever you need me, send word your owl will find me. So how come the Ministry of Magic didn't just send Sirius an owl and track it in order to find and arrest him? J.K.R. has said that just as wizards can make buildings unplottable, they can also make themselves untraceable. Quote, Voldemort would have been found long ago if it had been as simple as sending him an owl. And from Pottermore, quote, should a witch or wizard not wish to be sent letters or tracked in any other way, he or she will have to resort to repelling, disguising, or masking spells, of which there are a great range. It is possible to protect yourself from all correspondence or all but that carried by a specific owl. We don't have total clarity here on how this would work with more than one owl being used by Harry to contact Sirius. But we have enough information to maybe presume that Sirius is letting Harry's birds in or a limited number of birds in, but not all birds. Maybe it's interesting to think sure. about. Number four. Here is Harry describing the atmosphere at Privet Drive vis-a-vis -vis his cousin, Dudley. They told him they'd have to cut his pocket money if he keeps doing it, so he got really angry and chucked his PlayStation out of the window. That's a sort of computer thing you can play games on. Aha! But the PlayStation was not out when Goblet takes place. This part of Goblet is the summer of 1994. PlayStation was not released until December 1994. That's fine. Dag. It's close. The magical hookup, maybe? Something. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, for Dudley? You know, yeah, who yeah. knows? Who knows? It's just a fun Keep thing. Keep the residents happy. Just a fun nugget that I, I realized while rereading this. Love that. That's yeah. great. Number five. Regarding Mrs. Weasley's career hopes for Fred and George, quote, Mom wants them to go into the Ministry of Magic like Dad, and they told her all they want to do is open a joke shop. Now, it's interesting to consider that this comment is issued in a this-is-the-family-way kind of fashion, but in reality, Percy is the only Weasley kid who will have a long-term career at the Ministry, and that choice, plus his own nature, results in him temporarily breaking with the family. Fred and George do quite well with the joke shop. Bill and Charlie thrive in their respective curse-breaking and dragon mm -hmm. training careers. Ron briefly works as an Auror before joining George at the joke shop. And Ginny briefly played professional Quidditch, which is awesome, before becoming a journalist, working as a correspondent at the Daily Prophet. So 
We never hold anything against Molly, Man. against the MILF herself. But this Love wish, the MILF. this wish was quite misguided. Love the MILF. Ron as an Auror is a tough look again for the ministry. I'm sorry. I love my guy, Ron. Short-lived career as an Auror. Love my dude, Ron. But the fact that he made it into that department is not great. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. There's an interesting discrepancy between versions of the book, which Zach Cram, our expert fact checker, was delighted to find. When Voldemort is telling Wormtail one more murder and the like, they actually don't need to end up killing anyone further to get Harry. United Kingdom versions of this chapter say one more curse and one more obstacle instead, which actually makes a lot more sense. What's one murder or another to Voldy, though, you know? I feel like he probably just uses the word as like a stand-in for everything. Number seven, in light of three of our Favorite recurring bits about our guy Harry. We feel compelled to highlight the awkward humor of three lines. First line, even Quidditch, in Harry's opinion, the best sport in the world, couldn't distract him at the moment. Wow. Well, that's a first. It and it will not last long because right after the horrors at the World yeah, Cup, like, they get back to the You want to play three on three? <laughs> let's yeah, go. let's go. Let's play three on three. And Hermione's like, you fucking idiots. <laughs> the fuck? Next, quote. <laughs> He was used to bizarre accidents and injuries. They were unavoidable. If you attended Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and had a knack for attracting a lot of trouble, no safer place How many? How many students a, a year die on average at Hogwarts? <laughs> I mean, how many have to, like, regrow a limb at some point? I think that's the easy part, though, like, right? Does, does Madame Pomfrey order Skelligrow in bulk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you What's have the, to. the magical Sam's Club? And then finally, quote, have you had a good summer, Harry, said Hermione. I love this. Did you get our food parcels and everything? Uh, wait a minute. Did Harry not say thank you? He writes to everyone saying, rescue so me, good. Dudley's on a so diet, good. I've just eaten rabbit food. They all send him packages of food and then send him cakes for his birthday. And he never even acknowledges receipt. Too busy counting his cash in the vault. And <laughs> <laughs> not giving any to the Weasleys. <laughs> Oh, Harry. Oh, God. Mal? My lord, I I have no wish to leave you. Not at all. Do not lie to me. I can always tell, Jason. You're regretting that you ever returned to me. I revolt you. (laughs) I see you flinch when you look at me. Feel you shudder when you touch me. No, no, no. And my devotion to your lordship is boundless, as is my devotion to today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to somebody's guy, Lord Voldemort. <laughs> Listen, not a lot of good choices. And it must be said, things going swimmingly for the Lord right now. Yeah, I mean, look, he needs help milking his snake, sure. And it's getting milked. (laughs) But he's in position to have a snack and buy the substance for the first time in 13 years. We will not discover the full truth of his current hideous form until the book's conclusion, but we know that he has some form and that it's enough to, like, repel Wormtail and horrify Frank when he sees it. That's a big fucking deal. Professor Trelawney's prediction from the end of Azkaban is coming true. Wormtail has returned, and the Dark Lord appears poised to rise again. What's more, Moldivoli seems to be living the high life. Yes. He's at home, the Riddle House, and hey, that's his actual last real name, so this is his ancestral home with the one that he never got to live in, cast aside to live in an orphanage as he was. 
It must feel good, a kind of reclamation in a sense, to sit in the home of the father who never wanted him, the father he returned to kill. Now, Frank's death is a tragedy. As Ronan says in Sorcerer's Stone, always the innocent are the first victims. So it has been for ages past. So it is now. But from Voldemort's perspective, Frank's death, just like Bertha Jorkins's interrogation and subsequent murder, is a massive moment. A death at his hands. Power coursing through his wand again. Tangible, terrifying proof of the form that he is slowly regaining. And he's not done. It's more to come. Part of the unrivaled genius of how this book works is how the nature of his plan reveals itself in the closing pages. So we won't harp on that now. But there is a plan. It involves Harry. It's in motion. And that is a big deal. I'd give my right hand to know what it is. (laughs) Can you pass the milk? (laughs) Oh, God. Well, friends, we regret to inform you that we found Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, lying there with their eyes wide open, cold as ice, still in their dinner things. We hope that you're in a better state and that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow when we will be discussing chapter 6 through 10 of Gobble to Fire. Dun, dun, dun. Until then, remember, do not lie to Lord Binge Mode, Muggle, for we know, we always know. Hello, Wormtail. My loyal servant returned to me at last, Yes, Master, I'll do anything, anything you ask. I'm here. It's been so long, 13 long years. I've desired to see you again, and I'm here. I'll do anything. Okay. I need you to milk my snake. What? (laughs) What? My snake. I need you to milk it. Is it a metaphor for something?